good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. If you can't tell by the weather we've been having, our text this morning is the flood. <laughs> Noah's Ark is a, a story that we're all familiar with. We probably heard it as a child, whether we were a Christian or not. We all know the story. But we probably know slightly different versions of it because the details were given in the Bible, frankly, contain a lot of gaps in information. There are so many details that it, it doesn't include. We're left with many questions, and that's normal, and, and so far as we're earnestly seeking truth, we, we try to use our best judgment of the deals we do have in, in Scripture and nature to piece together how it might have happened. So I come in this morning aware that you have a lot of questions, and there are a lot of different views, and, and how can we even know this is true? I hear it all pressing in, and I'm not going to tell you my stance. I'm going to tell you a story. A couple months ago, I began feeling sick, feverish, and my, my plan was to deal with this sickness how I think most men my age do by doing absolutely nothing yeah. and, and hoping that by the power of being ignored, the sickness would just get bored and, and, and move on. Well, after a few days of having repeatedly found me curled up, sweating, shivering, groaning in pain in my bed, my wife suggested that maybe my plan wasn't working. And I, I conceded that doing absolutely nothing for three days had not worked, but that I hadn't yet tried doing absolutely nothing for four days. <laughs> so we came to an agreement, and the next day we visited the emergency room. They showed me a black and white blur on a screen that they called an infection. And they told me that if I continued staying at home doing absolutely nothing, that I would eventually develop sepsis and eventually die. Not like that day, there, there was a cure, but if I stayed home, eventually. I needed to have surgery, but because of the location of the infection in my body, they couldn't do it in the ER. I needed a specialist surgeon. And so I was admitted to the hospital until the next day. While there, I, at, I had several different doctors, like five different doctors, and I asked them all the burning question, that I had, which is how did this infection get in this part of my body? And they all gave me the same unsatisfying answer, which was, we don't really know. Some of them said, based on my life stage and medical history, it probably most likely happened this way. Others disagreed and said, it, it probably happened this way. But in the end, they all said they weren't sure. They didn't have enough details to know for certain. But while they disagreed on how this happened, they didn't accuse one another of malpractice for disagreeing because they understood that knowing how this happened wasn't essential for saving my life. They were in agreement on that front. But that's not the main point of the story. The next day, they wheel me down to the surgery floor. It's a, it's a somber place, a reverent place. The breath of life is fragile there. Eventually, an anesthesiologist comes in. He tells me they're going to put me completely to sleep, and then they're going to flop my unconscious, naked body onto an operating table for the surgeon to go to work. And to all of you who laughed at me, I would like you to know that in the end, the doctor's plan did include me doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> but then the surgeon comes in. She sits by my bed. She puts her arm on, her, her hand on my shoulder because I was starting to feel a little nervous. It's not that the surgery was risky. It's just I'm about to entrust my 
body, lifeless, unconscious to a room full of other people. Starts to feel weighty in this moment. And the surgeon, she begins to share a little about what she's going to do. I, I didn't feel offended in this moment, but it was kind of like she was talking baby talk to me. See, I looked into it. She has 15 years of medical schooling, this specialist surgeon, years in the medical field, at least 20 years of knowledge and details. But she has two minutes to communicate to me what is about to happen so that I will give her my consent to operate. I don't have 20 years to hear all the details that she knows, so she picks the details very carefully, and she shares with me what I need and no more. Our text this morning doesn't include all the details, but it does include all the details that you need to know to be saved. We can put our trust in the person sharing the details, or we can die in the waiting room obsessing over the gaps. Let's pray together, and we'll read. Bountiful Lord, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Turn to us and be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love your name. Help us sit at your feet and behold wondrous things together. Light our eyes, we pray. Amen. Please stand together as we read. It's a long text, so I'm not going to read all of it. I'll tell you when I'm skipping ahead, but we're going to start in Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then moving on to chapter 7, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 20. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Skipping now to chapter 8, verse 15, the end of the story. Chapter 8, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. 
Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. The text for this morning is long, but the story is pretty simple. The story like the flood, it rises up to Genesis 8-1, where God remembers Noah, then it recedes back down to dry land at the end. I think the most simple way to see the story is with a beginning and a middle and an end, a beginning where mankind is filling up the earth with violence, a middle where God is filling up the earth with watery judgment, and an ending where a few favored humans are filling the earth once again walking with God. If you're new to the story, you might wonder how the humans get from the beginning to the end, and that is a very good question to be asking. We'll walk through the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story by asking three questions. Saved from what? Saved by what? Saved for what? But through it all, our big idea is that God makes new beginnings with his people through judgment to faithfully fill the earth with his image. We'll look first at what Noah is being saved from. These are the generations of Noah. This is the family story of Noah. So let's gather around and, and hear about our great-grandpa Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. He was the right version of what a human being is supposed to be. He's not perfect. He's not sinless. But among his contemporary, he's the closest to how a human ought to be because he's walking with God, not running away from God, not warring against God, walking with God, going with the current of the divine river that gives life to all things. Noah is walking with God because he found favor in God's sight, in his eyes, which is strange because God, we're told right before this, God looks on the earth and he sees the wicked thoughts of everyone's hearts that were always evil all the time. And you get the picture that Noah was walking with this crowd, away from God, against God, going with the flow, with sin in his bones, but feeling like someone was watching him. He lifts his eyes and finds God staring right at him, piercing eye contact. But they're full of grace toward him. God's smiling eyes draw him in, and Noah begins walking with God, not away from God, not against God, but with God. This is how a human ought to be. Noah listens when God speaks and God tells him his plan. God is going to destroy the earth and everyone in it because the earth is destroyed in God's sight. This word for corrupt, it's the same as destroyed. God is saying he's going to destroy what mankind has already destroyed by destroying their way on the earth. So how has mankind corrupted or destroyed their way? By filling the earth with violence, wrongness. So certainly this is physical violence and taking life. We see that all through Genesis. But we could go right down the second half of the Ten Commandments to see how this word for violence is used in the Pentateuch in, in taking life. So taking life, murder, taking purity and sexual violence, taking possessions in theft, or, or even taking someone's reputation, 
by being a malicious witness or a violent witness who bears false testimony. Violence takes life in any form from other humans. It takes and takes and takes. And the earth from Cain to Lamech and beyond is filling up with blood. Vengeance is spiraling out of control. The blood of the innocent is crying out to God and he is ready to stop delaying and destroy the earth with everyone in it. I know that it's tempting here to think that God is cruel. To look at this story and wonder, is this fair? To say, isn't God just being the most violent of all the violent people? Isn't God acting like a tyrant? Why would I want to walk with a destructive God like that? If the God in heaven is a violent God, then let's all run and hide or turn and fight. And this is exactly why God decides he must destroy it all and start over. Because God made humans to be miniature images of himself. If the God of heaven and earth was at his core a violent and destructive God, he would not desire to blot out the images of violence in the earth. But the images of God have become corrupt. They're wrong, faulty, destructive images of the one true God. It's precisely because the maker of heaven and earth is not at his core a violent God that he must blot out every faulty image of himself because he is zealous to fill the earth with his image, with the true knowledge of who he is, not false pictures. The God who made the earth is a giver of life. He gives breath and dry land to live on and food to eat. He wants everyone to know him as he is. And he is perfectly just to blot out anyone who is bearing a violent testimony to his name. The maker of humans is perfectly, logically just in judging the humans whom he created to be with him and be like him, like an artist with a beautiful masterpiece in mind. God has every right to crumple up the paper and start over when the lines he draws won't stay straight in their proper place. But actually far more absurd than the idea of a creator God judging his created humans is that God actually tells one of the humans about it. He speaks to Noah. He warned him that judgment was coming. And God has a warning about coming judgment for us today as well. Maybe you think this is ridiculous. Isn't religion just a crutch to help comfort people who are scared of death? Well, I'm not scared. That's the circle of life. God isn't going to break in and judge everyone. You might think that. Well, would you believe it that God in his word actually predicted that people would, would hold that position? Second Peter 3 says this, it says, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
But they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Jesus affirmed these things when he said, In the days like Noah, so will my return be to judge the earth. See, God judged the whole world once, and he's going to do it again. God issued a warning to Noah, and he issues a warning to everyone today. His anger does not fly off the, the handle. He's not hastily violent and destructive. He's being graciously patient with you by not yet destroying all who have destroyed his image because he desires that you should repent to turn from walking opposed to God and walk with him because God judges humans. If you're hearing this message, this is your warning. A day of judgment is coming when you will be exposed and judged as a human being by the God who made you. You cannot claim ignorance. You can only claim rejection. It's incredibly consistent throughout the whole Bible that God saves everyone who listens to his voice. All who call on him are saved. None that earnestly seek him will be turned away. Noah alone among his contemporaries walked with God and heeded the undeserved warning. Likewise, we have all been warned. But what good is a warning if there's no way to be saved? Let's look at our, our second point here. Saved by what? Well, God doesn't just tell Noah what God is going to do. God tells Noah what Noah is going to do. If Noah trusts God, he's going to build a boat, an ark. He tells him the dimensions. He tells him that he's going to bring a flood of judgment. But he's going to establish his covenant with Noah, and so Noah should go into the ark with his wife, his sons, his sons' wives, as well as a male and a female of all the kinds of animals so that they can later multiply and fill the earth again. And Noah did all this, everything that God commanded him, he did. His faith is remarkable. Then God told Noah to go into the ark with all these followers of his. But then he tells him to bring seven pairs of the clean animals, likely so that Noah can worship God by making sacrifices of them on the other side of this flood while having enough left over still to multiply. See, God is always filling up our lives with enough things to give back to him in thanks and praise. The question is whether we see things God's way or not. So by faith they all enter the ark as God commanded. The flood comes upon the earth. Waters come from above and below. We have lengths of time of seven and forty symbolizing completeness, fullness. Waters of judgment are filling up the earth for the fullness of time. 
And then 716, the Lord shut him in. The Lord divinely seals them into the ark. Many questions arise here. Why bother having Noah labor over building this ark if in, in the end he needs divine intervention to not get swept right out of it? Why doesn't God just speak and recreate the heavens and the earth with Noah on the other side? I think it's clear that God wants Noah to walk with him by faith, to act in faith. And Noah's faith is commendable. The prophets praise him. He's in the, the hall of faith in, in Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's trust of God is something we should all strive for. And yet, in the end, he needs the Lord to shut him in. Let's take this a step further, though. In, in being shut in the ark, is being shut in there really the most life-giving thing? It's not a cruise ship. It's not a ferry trip across the bay. If you want a boat analogy, this seems a lot more like Gilligan's Island to me. They're, they're stuck in this boat in a world full of water. The middle of the story, it slows down a lot. Waters come, they keep coming, they stick around. Seven days, 40 days, 150 days, and back down again. And here's the thing, God is silent through it all. He speaks a lot in this passage, but not in the middle. God tells Noah to go into the ark. He obeys, he is shut in, and then for the rest of the year, God says nothing. Augustine is eager to point out that the dimensions of the ark are very similar to that of a human body. And you might see that really it's, it's shaped a lot like a coffin. I think there's some good scriptural reasons for this. I'll get to a New Testament one later. But in the, in the first books of the Bible, which Moses wrote, the word for ark is only mentioned one other time, and it's when Moses is a baby. He's born in Egypt, a land ruled by violence and corruption. The baby boys of God's people are commanded to be thrown out into the mighty Nile River to die. Some faithful and righteous women are walking with God. They deliver babies. They, they're hiding the babies, but they've hid Moses as long as they can. So they place him in a little ark. A basket, an ark, Moses calls it. Giving him over to death, trusting that God alone could bring deliverance here. Noah walks with God and obeys his voice and finds himself locked inside a coffin. You say, but he has faith. Yes, by faith, he has completely surrendered his life to another. The righteous man of faith is like a baby in a basket floating down the river of death. He's unconscious on the operating table, utterly depending on another to save his life. This is as far as faith gets any human. Because any step farther and boasting starts. Faith can get you to the edge of the Red Sea with Egyptian chariots closing in behind you, but it is not your name you will be praising if you get out of this one. Faith can get you 
in the tomb, but God alone can raise the dead. Faith can open empty hands, but it cannot place anything of value inside them. Which is why Genesis 8-1 is the mountaintop of this story. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The waters of judgment are swirling on every side, pressing in. I, I dare you to search the word flood in the Psalms this week and, and to just pray for what you find. You won't do it. God's people have always been well acquainted with being afflicted, struck down, death closing in all around. God's people have always been a crying out for deliverance kind of people. Save us, we cry. Do you even care that we are perishing? And as the waters swarm, as the floods rise up, when the fullness of time comes and no sooner, the Lord who is enthroned over the flood outside of time calls to mind the apple of his eye and a hovering wind stills the storm. God could have spoken and created the world anew. None of us would know the difference. He can raise up stones to praise him. Why not just gather up a new clump of dust and breathe the breath of life in on the other side of the flood? Why does he save this clump of dust named Noah? There are dozens of ancient accounts of the flood story. Almost every world religion remembers everything starting over with the flood. They share many of the same details because it really happened. But they miss the most important detail, the reason for it all. God is not annoyed by the noisiness of his people down here. He's not trying to control the population so we won't take over. He, it's not a story of humans finding a way to escape the cruel gods. The reason God saves Noah goes back before Noah was even born. His faith is impressive, but that's not the main point. It's not the reason he saved. God doesn't start completely over with new humans because he made an unprompted promise to a couple clumps of dust named Adam and Eve that he would send a deliverer through their line. God saves Noah because God promised it would be through this very good humanity that a deliverer would come no matter how corrupted they became. It is the unprompted, unprovoked grace of God before Noah was born that God doesn't let the flood overcome this flimsy work of human weakness called an ark. So God graciously seals Noah in to death to save his life because Noah needed to pass through death to find new life. I know that sometimes in our age we're a little uncomfortable with allegory. For some reason we think that if something 
is an allegory. It means it, it, it didn't really happen, that there's fiction or there's fact. But God's world is full of things being both scientifically true and symbolically true at the same time. These aren't mutually exclusive, especially when the New Testament interprets an event of the Old Testament as corresponding to a future truth, we should embrace it. So it is with the flood story. First Peter 3 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, that's Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, were being brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this flood story, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of God tells us that baptism corresponds to the flood story, not just as a cleansing, but as an appeal, a pledge of faith to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know what we were baptized into? Paul really wants us to know in, 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 six, in Romans 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a lot of different ways to faithfully baptize a person, but we like to fill up a big tub with water, and then a three-part story unfolds. They make a good confession completely dry. Then the pastor lays them down, completely submerged under the water. Then at the end, they are raised up out of their, the waters. And there's a reason we don't post pictures of the middle part of this story. Because it looks like they're being drowned by their pastor. But how incredibly appropriate that moment is. Because by putting your faith in Christ, you're saying, I am going into the tomb. And I am trusting you to raise new life in me. Unconscious on the operating table, like a baby in a basket, my life is in your hands now. Kill the old me. Drown me out. I want to walk with you in newness of life. And Jesus the true one righteous man, blameless through all generations, says, follow me as I walk with God. Take up your cross. Come and die with me. Enter in. Like the ark, I will take the beating. I will let every ounce of that judgment flood rage against my flesh. I can take the punishment for all who enter this tomb with me by faith. And the wrath of God comes. And the ark rises above it all. It floats on the surface of the judgment. So Jesus rises from the dead and brings all those with him who entered in. 
If you haven't been baptized, please put your faith in Jesus. Judgment is coming. God is patiently delaying what you deserve today. Enter into faith in Christ. When he died on the cross, he became sin for us. He took the judgment of God against sin. He rose from the dead, and he invites you to enter into his death and new life. Trust him. He will blot out every sin in your life, not just to give you a second chance. We'd screw up on that. He gives you a whole new life that has already passed through the judgment and has risen to the heavens to walk with God. But for what purpose? Let's move to point three. Saved for what? This story, it doesn't really end. It just begins to end. It enters an ending. The waters begin to drain. The ark rests on a mountain. Then the mountains start to be seen. After 40 days, Noah releases a raven. It never returns. Finds something better to do on the earth. Then he releases a dove, but it comes back. She couldn't find an appropriate place to set her foot down. Noah waits seven days. He sends out the dove again. It returns this time with a branch from an olive tree. Seven more days, Noah waits. Sends out the dove again. This time it doesn't return. But Noah keeps waiting. And on the first day of the first month of the 601st year, the waters are dried. Noah removes the covering of the ark to look out. The ground is dry, but he's still in the ark on the 27th day of the second month. What is he waiting for? Finally, God speaks and says, go. Out from the ark, everyone. Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This whole story is about a new creation. Waters cover the deep at the beginning in Genesis 1, and waters cover the earth once again in this story. And very slowly, very slowly, the new creation land is drying out as the seas are being gathered up to reveal the dry land. A lot of waiting, at least from a human perspective, right? What is this new creation? In Noah's story, it's the land. Humans are still sinful after the flood, we'll see in the coming weeks. But the land is cleansed. Humanity is cleansed. In the Israelites' story, coming out of Egypt, they're going to a new land delivered from slavery. They're going through the Red Sea. They're going to a new land, but they're also having their identity changed from slaves to being royal priests of the living God. What about your story of deliverance? When you came up out of baptism... Were you in a new land, a new nation? Did wars cease on the earth? Did your coworkers suddenly like you? Did your problems go away? What's the new creation in baptism? It's not the world around you. It's you. 
2 Corinthians 5 tells us, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Being united to Christ in faith, in baptism, you are a new creation. Not your circumstances, you. The Spirit hovers over the waters like a wind. The wind blows wherever it wishes, but we know where it wishes to blow. It wishes to clear out dry land for humans to live and flourish. It wishes to clear out the chaos and bring order and peace. It wishes to clean out the house of our hearts to dwell within. You are the new creation. So what are we to do with this new creation? Let's look at this raven and dove. It's a little strange, but I I agree with one commentator who said the raven and the dove are just begging to be interpreted allegorically. Right? But but how? And there's there's different ways. But one thing that's crystal clear is that the, the flood corresponds to baptism. We're told that. And in all four gospel accounts, they record Jesus' baptism and the Spirit descending in the form of a dove on Jesus. So we have that connection. But there's something more about the raven dove and clean and unclean animals. Clean animals, like doves, are discerning with their feet and with how they feed. They walk carefully, they don't step anywhere, and they meditate on their food. God's doing something with the animals and the ark and the nations and the Old Testament and the clean and unclean and being led by the pillar of cloud and those that aren't. We don't have time to get into all of it, but the raven is unclean. It goes out. It immediately finds a place to rest its foot. It doesn't discriminate between the old creation and the new creation. The ground isn't finished yet. It's not dried out. There very well might have been carcasses that a raven finds to land on and feast on their flesh. But the dove doesn't see holy ground yet when it goes out. It doesn't live on flesh. It lives on fruit, so it returns. It returns and it waits. Returning and waiting. Likewise, Noah waits for God to speak. He lives on the word of God. He walks with God as new creations in Christ. Through baptism, we are to continue putting to death our flesh, taking it off. Instead, putting on the new self, walking in step with the Spirit. The flesh, like the raven, rushes off the ark. It wants to return to its old desires as soon as possible. It will will charge right into the promised land, whether God is ready or not, whether God goes with it or not. The flesh wants to go forth and start building something, a new land, to show that I was worth putting on the boat. The flesh is desperate to show that I could have done this on my own. The flesh is always comparing myself to others instead of to God, always looking for lines and limits and laws to show how good I'm doing and how bad others are doing. The flesh sees the Christian life as a faith-measuring competition. Because the flesh is all about 
me. The flesh loves to boast in me to show how I'm a critical part of the story, how God couldn't do this without me. But there's no room for boasting in self, this side of baptism. It's like boasting that I'm the most empty-handed of all the beggars. It's like telling you that I was better at laying there unconscious than anyone else that my surgeon has ever operated on. But the Spirit boasts too, though. The Spirit boasts in weakness of me. You're right, God couldn't do this without me. He couldn't show the glories of His grace without a wretch like me. He couldn't show the riches of His mercy without this chief of sinners with nothing but debt. Because the Spirit knows the point of this whole story. These are the generations of Noah. The family story of Noah. But it's all about the grace of God from first to last. In today's text, God speaks over 400 words. Noah says nothing. God is the main character in Noah's story because Noah's story is a part of God's story. Christian, you have died. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. The one righteous man invited you in, and your life has never been the same. Behold, the old is gone, the new is come. You are a new creation, and your story is a part of the glorious grace of God from first to last. Embrace it. Invite the Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead to give life to your mortal body. Take off the old self. Put it away. Leave it in the bottom of the baptismal. Walk with God in newness of life. And by walking with the Spirit, slowly, a lot of patience here, slowly but surely, we begin lining ourselves up, finding ourselves more and more aligned with the Lord. Our little images begin looking a little more like the true image. And in every aspect of life, we allow ourselves to be aligned with God's desires. We could speak of many things here, but a couple things we see clearly in the text this morning is that we begin wanting to give life like God, the giver of life. We want to see images of him fill the earth. And we start to see, maybe it's slow, but we start to see that his original creation of making humanity male and female might be good. That God loves giving life and multiplying love. So he both created in the beginning and filled the ark at the new beginning with male and female distinct but equally essential for the flourishing of the human race. It's not about politics or what makes us uncomfortable. It's about our hearts and desires being remade into the image of God little by little. It's not our stances that are being aligned. It's our hearts. I know that these things are not popular right now. Embracing and proclaiming God's good creation in the beginning and God's gracious recreation of humans through dying to self. These, these things are not going to make us very popular right now. 
We might start to feel a little like Noah, alone in our generation, alone in the workplace, alone in our neighborhood, alone around the lunch table with little ones. But walking with God like the dove, we are those who return and wait. When I was a kid, my family attended different Lutheran churches off and on. I know the service was not as engaging as cartoons or football games, but the sanctuary was a, a fascinating place. It was full of these relics from a foreign time and place. It was like a portal into this other universe. And for a little observer like me, it was full of me staring at things that made older saints come up and say, let me tell you about that. One of those things was the ceiling. It was wooden panels, the whole ceiling, maybe like your attic, but they were finished wood, wooden panels all coming up to a central beam that came to a point above the altar. And it was explained to me that this room, the sanctuary, was meant to be like Noah's Ark, upside down, a shelter for all. We return here. Sanctuaries look different, but we return here, clean and unclean. We all pile in, and every week in different ways, we remember our baptism. When we passed through death into life everlasting by the grace of God from first to last, and every week we rise up out of this coffin and go out for another seven days. Go, return, wait what, what are we waiting for? Second Peter 3, it's the end of the passage we read at the beginning, says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved in the coming judgment, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Another judgment is coming, but it won't be like water. Water goes in through the nostrils. It steals the breath of life from within. But the final judgment, we're told, will be like fire. Fire burns from the outside in but it only consumes that which is not already pure. It leaves what is already new. See, in, in the final judgment of fire, God is ushering in a final new creation of heaven and earth, and you already are a part of that new creation, you. So you will pass through that judgment. So now we live wanting all the more to be that new creation, to fan it into flame because it will never perish. Our flesh will, our indwelling sin will, but that just means that as we are walking with God, taking God's side against our sin, we actually start looking forward to the coming judgment because it will once and for all take away the old and complete the new. This is your life, but it is God's story, and God's story 
is all about the praise of His glorious grace. He is zealous to fill the earth with His image. And He is faithful to make new creations of His people through judgment by showing them grace. Who wouldn't want to walk with Him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, nourish us with your word and strengthen us to walk with you for all our days to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.